0: Welcome back to Emerge. So today's conversation is with Zach Stein. Zach has been a guest on the show previously. Uh, he's quickly become one of my favorite thinkers. Uh, i discovered him in the midst of the inquiry of this podcast. And, you know, I, I, I've, over the course of a very short period of time, devoured all his publicly available work. Um, I just think that uh, he's kind of like Bonito Roy in that he's right on the edge of whatever this territory that I've been exploring on this podcast is what the best of it is. And so I had the joy and honor to actually record this in person at Zach Stein's house in Northern Vermont. One of the, uh, beautiful benefits of having moved back to the Monastic Academy is that I now find myself living quite close to Zach. Um, and so uh, the conversation that you'll listen to is one that we had after spending some time just chatting, getting to know each other, taking a walk in the woods. And I, I think that the, uh, the, the quality of the conversation reflects that uh, rapport building and, and kind of uh, exploration that we did beforehand. So I really, really loved this conversation. I uh, hope that you do too. Um, and I just want to make a, another plug. We'll plug it in the conversation itself, but a plug for Zach's new book, Education in a Time Between Worlds. You may look at this book and think, well, I don't really want to learn about educational theory. I'm not into that. But it's only ostensibly about education. It's really about everything. It's about the future. It's about how humans work. It's about how learning functions. The insights per page in this book are off the chart. I've never experienced anything like it. I personally, when I received this book, I received a digital copy a little bit before it was released. I read it in one day. I read it like I read you know, really good sci-fi that I sometimes find that just completely captivates or captures me. It's really, really, really good. I, I, I highly recommend that if you're, if you've been following the inquiry of this podcast, or if you're just interested in beautiful visions for the future, radical visions for the future, but pragmatic visions for the future, that you, you check out this book, you get a copy, read it, take it to heart. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's just a beautiful piece of work. A uh, little bit of housekeeping before we jump into the conversation. Uh, I mentioned before I took the break that I was going to be going down to Costa Rica to do a workshop with Joe Brewer on managing planetary collapse. My, my flight ended up being canceled, uh, so I didn't end up going to Costa Rica. Uh, instead, we rescheduled for August, so um, I won't have any kind of report back from that experience as of yet but once august comes around i'm sure that uh, i'll have have many things to share about that experience Uh, so just wanted to let you know about that okay without further ado here is zach stein The Emerge Podcast is proud to be sponsored by the Monastic Academy for the Preservation of Life on Earth. The Monastic Academy, located in Lowell, Vermont, is a training center dedicated to the amplification of human maturity in the age of the Anthropocene. The Academy trains its participants through a unique combination of rigorous contemplative training, project-based learning, and a disciplined commitment to ethical behavior, all held in the context of deep community. The Monastic Academy is currently accepting applications for the Apprenticeship Program. This program, lasting two or three months, includes silent retreats, daily meditation instruction, and regular authentic relating practices. This program is free. Other ways to participate include daily visits, week-long retreats, or, if you can work remotely, joining the Academy through the co-working program, allowing you to deepen your practice while keeping your job. For more information, you can go to www.monasticacademy.com. So I'm just start recording. Um, yeah, really grateful that I could meet with you in person, Zach. Yeah. Uh, yeah, as, yeah, as I said, I mean, um, in the process of doing this podcast, I've learned about a number of people and, uh, pursued their work. Yours has struck out to me as some of the most like clear and prescient and, and like compelling in it's an articulation of the kind of situation we find ourselves in. And, and so as I mentioned to you as we were walking, uh, you know, the inquiry of the podcast has really taken it to a point where uh, we I feel very clear about the crisis that we're facing, you know, the, the fact that there is a crisis. Uh, you talked to with Jem Bendel, uh, Vinay Gupta, uh, they all spoke about basically at this point, the way they framed it is, we're really trying to avert total human extinction, uh, which is some kind of bar, Right. Um, and, uh, so, you know, where does the conversation go after that? And, um, in your new book, education in a time between worlds, uh, I think one of the places that feels really resonant with me is that we turn to education. And so, uh, just to kind of open up the conversation, uh, why in this critical time that we're in, would we turn to educational theory?
1: Totally. I mean, there's a, there's a few reasons, right? So, sometimes the phrase meta-crisis is used, and sometimes that means there's a bunch of crises happening at once. So there's a meta-crisis, which is the combination of all the crises, and that makes sense. But there's another way of thinking about the meta-crisis, which is the crisis in our understanding Mm -hmm. of the crisis, Mm -hmm. which is to say that the actual crisis is a crisis of sense-making and decision-making and choice and of the human psyche. So that would mean that when we say, well, okay, there's a crisis, but there's actually a meta-crisis, working on the meta-crisis, as I just framed it, basically means working on education. It Mm. means changing the nature of the human and how humans think, how humans feel, uh, the way we make choices together, the way we relate to one another in communities... Changing the basic norms and patterns of human interaction end up looking like an educational mm. project. So then you need to think, well, then what is education? And
0: <laughs> you mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> need to get really deep and expand beyond schooling. And so, so in that sense, it's foundational. Before we can even start to solve the crises, yeah. we need to be smart enough and have good enough sense-making and be mature enough emotionally to actually see what the crisis or the crises are. Yeah. Um, so I think right now, some of what we think is actually a problem may or may not be a problem. It's the way we're making sense of it that's mm. the problem. Yeah. And so that wants me to act as an educator yeah. to heal the understanding of yeah. humanity, something like that.
0: Yeah, and, and in the book, I think uh, you portray it, and you even have a graph where it's like, um, you know, one way to understand this meta crisis is that the complexity or nature of the problems that are facing us are outstripping our capacities as human right. beings to deal with them. Yeah, that's the a kind of structural definition of an educational crisis
1: mm-hmm. would be that the task demands, which is to say, how hard is it to do your job in society? The task demands of society outstrip the capabilities available, yeah. um, and. So we're in that situation where the problems that are needing to be solved in the most basic roles of our society, the governance, the lawmaking, the medical system, the educational system, the economic system, the problems there are so complex, Mm -hmm. it's looking like we don't actually have the capacities to think about them correctly and to solve them correctly. Mm -hmm. And so that I think is a result of the past couple decades of our educational system. And I mean that beyond schooling, so I mean that to include the media, yeah Uh, yeah and entertainment and other things that structure our communication yeah Uh, so it was a crisis of schooling yes but it was also a crisis of the imagination and intergenerational transmission kind of more broadly Mm -hmm. that's my sense so yeah that's right we've reaching that point where if we don't get a lot smarter and more mature quickly We won't be able to solve the problems and we may even start solving problems that aren't the actual problems (laughs) that need to be solved which is to say we we invent a problem that can be solved and try to solve it instead of actually discovering the problem that needs to be solved and facing the real problem yeah and that's the emotional maturity part you Mm. know sometimes it's that we we're smart enough technically we could solve it we have the technical (laughs) solutions uh, but we don't have the will we don't Mm. have the political uh and emotional maturity.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So
1: that's another reason that when we reconceive education, you look at educational theory, you need to expand beyond human capital theory and other things to actually think correctly about right. the nature of the human, what learning is.
0: Yeah. So I'd love to explore a little bit about how you imagine education or how you look at education. And the first place that I think makes sense to start in order to clarify what we're talking about for listeners is just to, like, Unbundle schooling and education, which I think for many people at this point have been come completely combined and conflated.
1: Yeah, totally. It's ed- education and schooling are now synonymous. So when you talk about education reform, usually people mean reforming the schools. Right. Uh, but the deeper issue, which you pointed to, is that learning that learning itself becomes confused with that which takes place in schools, mm-hmm. and. That's probably one of the more damaging things that can affect someone's self understanding as a child mm. is that they come to understand learning as what takes place in schools and they don't like what takes place in schools so then they don't like learning mm. they don't they don't become someone who identifies as like I love learning there are things like satisfying curiosity finding curiosity yeah. like and uh, <clears throat> and so that's kind of interesting that there's part of what characterizes our culture is kind of giving up on learning in a serious way uh this is what jordan hall calls uh simulated thinking yeah (laughs) right and so the idea there is that yeah you learn that learning is bad or that you learning is not fun uh that learning is just memorizing to take a test learning is just competing with other kids Um, and you don't realize that you're actually constantly learning and you Mm -hmm. need to take responsibility for your learning and start to become Someone who has clarified their own learning uh, as a part of their identity. And so that some people luck into that. You get a good teacher. Right. You get a great school. Um yeah. And you become what's called a lifelong learner. Yeah. Uh, and that, of course, to be a lifelong learner, it means you've detached because you don't go to school your whole life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. So there's something. That's the main advice I give to parents, actually, mm. is like. They're like, where should I send my kid? Which school? Which is the charter school that's best? I'm like, hey, really the main thing is getting your kid to understand themselves as a learner. Mm. Getting your kid to understand their identity and to separate their identity and to separate their understanding of learning from what happens in school. Which means being a little bit openly critical of schooling in conversation (laughs) with your kids and not pretending that school is the route to success, etc. Yeah. Um, So. So there needs to be some deflating of that ideology of modern schooling, which is starting to happen. But uh, it's still the case that many, many people stop learning when they leave school, at least stop trying to learn. They end up learning things they need to learn to do their job and other things, but they don't continue to grow. And it may be that the educational crisis that I just described before this, the way to resolve that has to do with re- kind of reigniting mm. the natural learning. Mm. And I, I say in my book, you know, we're actually built to learn. Like, yeah. we literally are quote-unquote designed by nature to learn. And all you have to look at is a young infant who learns to walk, learns to speak, without going to school or having any state-mandated curriculum or any standardized yeah. tests around yeah. learning to speak and learning to walk. Yeah, They're naturally curious about doing what the other humans are doing and they're striving and actually with walking in particular, hurting themselves (laughs) Uh, and naturally learning. And that continues. And any good grade school or preschool teacher knows the intrinsic, almost indefatigable curiosity of a kind of an unshamed child. Mm. Um, Now, of course the naivete of the child, which leads them to ask why, Why? Why? To the point of frustration. (laughs) Uh, That's some of this negative constellation we have of curiosity. um, That at some point you stop asking questions because you grow up. And you can't be fascinated and in awe of things that are not explained. Grown-ups live in a world that's explained. And learning (sighs) is coming to step into that world of the mature, explained, rational... uh, So, yeah, so we, in a sense, kind of school out of kids the innate desire to learn. And I hate saying that because I love teachers and I love schools, and there are certainly schools and teachers that don't do that and actually create pockets to preserve that. But on the whole, when you look at modern education, it's so hard to not see that as one of the goals, as actually to try to subdue the creativity (laughs) of large masses of people and to be able to predict their behaviors as consumers and citizens. Um,
0: Which we can look at as, like, was historically appropriate at a time. Totally. I mean, there was it was impossible to
1: bring forward the technological and economic changes that we call modernity. Without the schools. Yeah. And this is one of those things that educators know, which many people don't, which is that the schools are the fulcrum that Mm. hold it all together. Mm. The schools are the route into the elite. Mm. The schools are the gatekeepers of the elite. Mm. The schools are the kind of human making function of Mm. the social system, which allows that system to be what it is. And so you don't get the railroads. You don't get the factories. Mm. 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 <laughs> you don't get the atom bomb. You don't mm. get a whole bunch of things that come with modernity and postmodernity if you don't have the types of schools that we had. And yeah. so then you have that chicken and the egg problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, So there's this long history of education reform actually being this kind of hidden yeah. deep structure or deep code for the social system. And if you follow the money, you do see that the most powerful philanthropic and industrial forces have historically had education as one of the main Mm. focuses of their tinkering Mm. with the social system. Mm. And historically there's been a kind of really asymmetric projection of influence of a small number of very wealthy people uh, to shape the nature of our public
0: schools. Mm. Um, Mm.
1: And so this is all just pointing to the kind of, Geo-historical yeah. significance of schooling as part of world system transition.
0: Yeah. And so I get the sense of like the epoch co-arising with the format of that education takes place in, right? Like the demands of modernity sort of called forth right. the modern okay. school system. And I think what you're speaking into with your book is the way in which this metamodern epoch that we're moving into is calling forth a different educational mm. form. And so maybe could you just sort of sketch in broad, broad strokes like what is that educational form that's being called forth? Because one of the things that I see um, kind of people who want to innovate within the realm of education speaking about is like uh, we can no longer educate our children for a world that we can project into the future as will it be existing. Because the nature of exponential change and just all the things that are happening on the planet right now is that we have no idea what world will exist. 10 even 5 years from now. Right. And so it seems like there's a different thing being called forth. Yeah, there is.
1: I mean, it's it's interesting. It's like this is to oversimplify it, but you know, one of the things modernity was trying to do was to take complex systems and turn them into complicated mm. machines. Mm. <laughs> mm. And so modern society was trying to be like a really well functioning complicated Mm. system Mm. and so the schools ended up having this kind of like really well specified function yeah uh which was to reduce the complexity of the human as a factor (laughs) um and to allow the machine of society to function Mm. now undeniably the thing that characterizes the metamodern epoch is a breakdown of the very possibility of having society be complicated
0: Mm. Um,
1: it never was complicated. It wasn't possible, but mm. it appeared to be just complicated that social problems could be solved and simplified. And right. but it's clear with the the sheer total complexity of the geopolitical and ecological constellation that is the Anthropocene yeah. right. <laughs> that we've gone beyond thinking that we can turn this into a complicated problem. Yeah, we need to be able to see human society as truly complex. Mm. And so that means that we can't have complicated school systems. Mm. Mm. <laughs> we need truly complex, adaptive, anti-fragile, mm. distributed <laughs> yeah. uh, schooling and education. Yeah. And, which means it doesn't look like a big school anymore. It yeah. looks like lifelong learning mm-hmm. uh, cradle to grave. Mm-hmm. Which is a phrase actually coined by the great Rusticrucian Comenius. Mm. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Part of the transition from Uh, As we were talking about earlier, the Renaissance to the Enlightenment involved one of the first calls for a pan-sophic, or Mm. which is to say universal wisdom Mm. beyond nation, beyond race, beyond creed, education for everyone Mm. from cradle to grave. Um, Not a prescribed curriculum of a particular doctrine or a set of given facts, but rather a prescribed modus operandi for being epistemically responsible, Mm. uh, socially responsible to pursue knowledge in a safe way, um, as opposed to just hold the knowledge that's been given. Yeah. And so this is an old idea. It's infused Dewey. Yeah. It's infused Steiner and the Waldorf schools. Yeah. So we kind of know this way of thinking about education. Yeah. Um, and so much of the seeds are there, uh, but we do need to admit that we're beyond dealing with this as a complicated problem. And so that's where the schools are starting to break. Complicated yeah. things just simply break. Yeah. Complex things do all kinds of weird stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. But a school system, it's got the buses, it's got the giant building with its physical plant, it's got the teachers and the teachers' unions, mm-hmm. it's got the textbooks, it's got mm-hmm. this massively. And everything needs to be perfect yeah. Yeah. because there's no room. Yeah. If your teachers strike, it's done.
0: Yeah.
1: If the building heat goes out, it's done. If the school buses can't run because there's bad weather, it's done. Uh, And so we live in a world where most of those things are not likely. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so my vision of educational hubs in the book has to do with that. It's about kind of dismantling the giant factory schools Mm. and putting in place a resilient educational hub network that actually infuses the community itself with Mm. educational power instead of vesting the educational Mm. power only in the school. Mm. Um, and so it's a broader conversation about how that's possible, but it's yeah. not like schooling. And so I end up kind of being a little bit provocative and saying yeah. that I'm, I want to do away with schools mm. and that schools are dead. Mm. Um, but in a sense, I'm just looking at the evolution of right. schooling.
0: Right. Um, right.
1: So uh, it no longer looks like what we've known as schooling, and yet it is serving this function of intergenerational transmission. Um, and it's serving this function of facilitating the ongoing capacity development of the whole population, yeah. um, which is back to the educational crisis, yeah. which is that these educational hubs I'm imagining allow everyone to participate. Yeah. Like, schools are actually strange, uh, and this is noted by a couple philosophers of education. They're strange in, in that they're so age segregated mm-hmm. and so precisely age segregated Yeah. Like it's an odd institution socially and even historically. Yeah. Now you would group younger people together, but yeah. never so precisely that all the first graders are within a year and a half, right. all the second graders are within right. a year and a half. Um, and then that no one can come to the school who's older mm. and learn, even if they're possible to do so. So a lot of this vision actually looks like a resuscitation of older models that look like one-room schoolhouse, apprenticeship, and guildship, type yeah. models, yeah. Um, yeah. which were the things that preceded that came before during the medieval period uh, before modernity. Yeah. And so <clears throat> there's a way in which we're, and this is part of Marshall McLuhan's <laughs> yeah. theory of cultural evolution, that the digital evokes a retrieval of the medieval. Mm. Um, uh, and so yeah, a return to these more complex um fully embodied in apprenticeship vocational intergenerational transmission uh, which allows for a form of teacherly authority that is validated through living experience of proficiency Hmm. and love Hmm. as opposed to teacherly authority validated by the authority of the state and the official curriculum Um, so that's the other thing that's happening in the schools is that there's a legitimation crisis. So it's one thing for the school to just break in its physical plant or its buses don't run or its teachers go on strike. But when the students start to have basically legitimate critiques Mm, of the ideology that's running the school, like if it's a government school and the government's run by people who are obviously suspects, right? Um, If the government appears corrupt, Um, And this happens everywhere, and it's starting to happen in the United States where it's hard to argue with these kids. Yeah, right. Like, yeah, you're right. (laughs) And so then you get not just a complicated system breaking, you get a cultural human system having an identity crisis. Mm. So Mm. you have a legitimation crisis in the schools, which means teachers cease to hold legitimate teacherly authority. They're cynically obeyed because Mm -hmm. they are bureaucratically have authority. But the actual teacherly authority, which is this incredibly valuable thing in our culture, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, is being degraded. Yeah. And yeah. that's a deeper factor in the, in the meta-crisis. Yeah. Is that it's not only that we don't know how to understand things, it's that we've deconstructed the possibility that there's any authority who could actually teach us. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> and, I mean, so, like, the, your, your writing on teacherly authority was very provocative for me as somebody who participates in a kind of monastic container right. right where like I came into that I think having pretty thoroughly deconstructed like the idea of teacherly authority I was like I'm doing this myself you know right. it's like very flattened out um, and your writing helped me to reconstruct that and actually grant that to the person who was trying to teach me and it was actually in the absence of my ability to grant that teacherly authority like teaching could not take place right right and so it's this, like necessary resource that if it's not present like learning Can't or teaching can't also be present. Um, And so at this point, I want to just like strongly recommend folks who are listening who are enjoying the exploration of this kind of like uh, Zach called it or told me earlier as a kind of thought experiment about the future of education. To just read the book. It's, it's extremely good. I don't do product placements on this podcast, but like (laughs) I recommend a monastic lifestyle and this book apparently so far. Uh, But what I want to focus on um, from here in the conversation is, you know, you called education this human making function within society. And so the question that obviously emerges from that framing is what kind of human should we make? And how do we then make those humans that we should make? Right. So I'd love to hear you kind of just take a swing at that generally, and you know, um, yeah, I think. Totally, I mean, that's,
1: at the end of the day, that's the most basic question in the philosophy of education. And it's one of the reasons that uh, it's hard to really reform education because mm-hmm. to really reform education, you have to reform the vision of humanity mm. that's being held um, so again back to the Rosicrucian enlightenment and part of the transition from the renaissance to the enlightenment as we know it which gave us modernity and science was proposals for a different type of education mm. system based on a totally different way of thinking about the human mm. totally different than the kind of medieval pagan view was this renaissance revival and synthesis of Christianity and neoplatonism and Mm. And it was a way in which Comenius and other early educational reformers saw that. Dewey saw that. he mm. realized that the argument about education boils down to arguments about human nature. Mm. And not a descriptive, necessarily, although that's mm. part of it, which is to say the science of what the human is and the anthropology of what humans have been, uh, it's also normative. Yeah. It's also prescriptive. Yeah. It's about what the human ought to be or what the potentialities are latent within the human yes. um, that need to be actualized. And so that is, it's interesting because it's also where you end up if you do psychology really deeply. The bottom of those two fields come to this thing I'm mm. calling metapsychology, mm which is kind of where these fields that are concerned about the human end up necessarily touching on metaphysics. Mm. So, um, you know, the nation-state and, you know, both in its communist and capitalist forms, the nation-state had a very difficult time fully answering the question, what is the human?
0: Mm. You know, Mm. so...
1: In the capitalist forms, well, I mean, both of them, you jettison the possibility of offering a religious answer into the non-serious personal realm. Mm -hmm. So you depoliticize, you depoliticize, and you delegitimate the epistemic validity of the religious answer to the question, Mm -hmm. what is the human? Mm -hmm. So you can take that on faith, (laughs) but we can't teach that in the schools. And so this has been one of the things that has been slowly eating away at the core of what has been a beautiful public educational mm. system has been the lack of a coherent answer to that question. Right. What is the human and what ought right. the human be aside from a wage laborer and a citizen and a soldier? Yeah, Which were the answers that were given. right? And which are easier answers to give in times of war or times of economic crisis. Mm-hmm. It's easier to say, well, the human is someone who has to work a job to support themselves to make money that's what humans do and it feels there's so much pressure to work a job and make money to survive that that must be the answer Um, or we're at war so you're a soldier this is what humans do Um, but it doesn't take too much reflection to realize that that's not a great answer Um, and that you end up going into the realms of religion Mm -hmm. and theology um, and a kind of Uh, embodied ethics of intergenerational transmission. Mm -hmm. Because the other complicated thing with education is that and this is of course the shadow side of the religious answer is that the human's obviously evolving. Mm -hmm. So we can't say the human is this Mm -hmm. period. The human is this period. Listen kid, you will be just like your grandfather was. And your kids will be like their great grandfather was. Um, And so that was the dignity of modernity right. was that, no, there's no simple answer. Right. And traditions need to change. Traditions need to evolve. Right. And especially the mechanism of intergenerational transmission needs to be loose enough so that mm. the children don't repeat our mistakes. Yeah. Right?
0: Yeah.
1: The religious pre-modern worldview had figured it all out right. and was executing it. The scientific right. worldview, when it began was trying to instantiate a society that was continually learning about itself. Mm. Now, it has ceased to be that for a bunch of different reasons, but uh, in the end, we're stuck in the same situation of, yeah, getting down to brass tacks about the nature of the human.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So, so that just points to the significance of the question. Uh, yeah. As far as answering the question, then you get into more complicated territory. And so we can start to go there, but that would require digging into some of the most basic elements of metapsychology. Mm. And so some of the things we do know about the human uh, is that the human is an evolved biological organism, which shares very basic properties with other evolved biological organisms. Mm -hmm. And so one of the places to start, and this is where, the tradition of educational psychology starts mm-hmm. with Piaget and and others uh, is to just take from a descriptive standpoint, getting into that question in a rich psychological way. What, how is the human? What does mm-hmm. it work like? Mm-hmm. Um, how right. is it? How is it similar to other animals that we've right. seen and understood? How is it similar to plants, mm-hmm. which is a big deal? Mm-hmm. If you're a Waldorf educator, the mm-hmm. the etheric. How mm-hmm. is the human? share in the patterns of nature. Mm. Um, And so that's important. Mm. Um, Easy to neglect. The seasonal rhythms of the human, the uh, Mm. growth dynamics of the human, which is what Piaget and the developmental tradition originally began as and Mm. should remain as, is looking at Mm. the natural growing dynamism of the Mm. organism in context. Mm. And there are things we know about humans in those contexts, like... Mm. The relationship between feeling, emotion, and thought—that <clears throat> mm-hmm. you can't just focus on thought. Mm-hmm. This is uh, this can be taken as a universal yeah. about the, what the human is. Yeah. Um, and so, as you begin to paint this richer story—a non-reductive story about yeah. how complex just a single human being right. is—you <laughs> start to have to do away with treating every human being as being identical, yes. or at least able to be treated as identical. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so that's one of the reasons we're in this situation we're in, is that what I call in my book reductive human capital theory, yes. um, trying to turn the complex into the complicated, yes. ended up painting or only allowing p- to be painted a very simple picture of what the human is. Yeah. Um, and, so, and we have psychologies, um, some forms of cognitive psychology, some forms of neuroscience, that basically that's their metapsychological orientation is to fill out the picture that human capital theory allows them to paint. And Roy Bascar called this the uh destratified alienated subject. <laughs> <laughs> um which is to say yeah. it's kind of this simply kind of self-optimizing, rational decision maker, basically yeah. is what it is. Right. Um, and so you can treat it in a certain kind of way. Um, if you start to complexify that image of the human, say that it grows in levels of development and that it grows in emotional capacity mm-hmm. um, and that there are reflective and perhaps even transpersonal dimensions to its personality, uh, it becomes very different mm-hmm. and harder to predict as an mm-hmm. economic and pedagogical subject.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So, yeah, the first step in rethinking education is rethinking even just how we describe and think about the human. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, for example... Should adolescents wake up at 5.30 a.m. in order to take a bus to school to be there by 8.45? All the neuroscience, which is not like a controversial, this is not like hard neuroscience to do, (laughs) Uh, and and this is not like Jungian psychology that's like controversial. This is very simple. We've known for a long time that this is is bad news for Mm -hmm. their nervous systems. Uh, We shouldn't do this. Um, Do people learn well from just being lectured at? about things they're not interested in, mm. empirically? Mm. No. Mm. Uh, do people learn well in environments that are physically unsafe? Mm. Or when, mm. when they haven't eaten? or mm. And the list goes on of basically common sense, <laughs> uh, common sense return to humanizing the subject of education. That's yeah. the first step. Once you start to get a more realistic picture in the descriptive, then you can start to leverage your, prescriptive notions. And this mm-hmm. is something that Roy Bascar calls the kind of dialectic between the is and the ought, mm. which is to say the dialectic between what is the case and what ought to be. Mm. And if you are a reductionist, you only worry about what is the case. Yeah. If you are kind of an idealist, yeah. uh, you will just worry about what ought to be the case. Yeah. But of course, what we need to do is yeah. mediate between yeah. what we know to be the case and then clarifying our intuitions of yes. what, what ought to be. And yes. so my sense is, and this is a very Deweyan answer, is that we can in a very general way, general way say that <clears throat> that human is good who is prepared to become better. Mm. Right? And so Dewey expressed this by saying, mm. the learning is best which prepares f- for future learning.
0: Mm. Doesn't mm. cut off
1: future learning. Mm. And so mm. you can kind of expand that way of thinking and say, well, the human isn't this person who believes this set of things. Right? Mm. That's not what the human is. The human mm. is not this person who does this mm. particular set of things because that's obviously not true. <clears throat> but the human has a certain capacity to make choice yes. in integrity. Yes. And so, if we provide the contexts in which people can mm. always be positioned to become better. Yeah. then that's a very, very general generator function for uh, an educational system. But it's too general to be yeah. prescriptive. Yeah. But yeah. it does mean that we need to be attentive to education as a lifelong growth dynamic yeah. and not see it as a limited economic function. Because yeah. that's the human capital theory, which right. is kind of my straw man. Right. Would have. Well, no, the ed, no. The, you know, schooling's about getting a job schooling's about essentially getting a certain skill set and being prepared to do certain things yeah. um, Whereas the metamodern answer has to be like well, well we don't know if that job's going to be yeah, there right. and we don't know if those skills are going to continue to be relevant so we need to somehow actuate this person as a much more mm. potentiated learner mm. and choice maker yes. Which is again, back to the story about modern schools. That was the opposite of what the modern yeah. school was trying to do. Yeah. They were actually trying to depotentiate right. the creative choice making right. power and right. make it predictable in a complicated right. system. We're saying we need to potentiate the choice making and responsibility right. of the individual actor precisely because it's yeah. a complex system. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 And so that's a major flip in the understanding of the role of schooling, yeah. which means that the school structure itself, like down to the actual architecture, Fails.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That,
1: you know, you build a school like a prison, you can't make free people. <laughs> uh, and so the, the Education Hub Network is a school without walls. Uh, it has to be. Yeah. And that's another way to simply break down that kind of ghettoization of learning into the school is right. to take the walls down and right. to show that, listen, almost every relationship is a potential educational relationship. That if you if there's a small community of 4,000 people in a town, people are walking down town street past one another, they don't even realize that they just passed a potential teacher, that Mm. they just passed a potential student. Mm. That that person's actually interested in something this person knows about Mm. or wants a skill this person knows Mm. about. So part of the Education Hub Network is surfacing the educational potentials that are latent in communities by creating a technological back-end that's like a very complex interest, skill, and time-sharing network. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is another reason that it's not simply a return to medieval yeah. forms of apprenticeship and other things. Yeah. There's a complexity here that's distinctly digital Yeah. that I've been calling the hidden universal yeah. that allows for the decentralization without uh, total fragmentation yeah. Um, yeah. and inequality. Because that's the fear, if you take the schools apart. You know, the schools were the route out right. and up yeah. for many people. And yeah. so there's that fear if you take it apart, then you leave those people just with what their community has. And, but that's not the vision. The idea is to reroute all those resources and to change a lot of the nature of where the resources are elsewhere mm. to make an education-centric society. Mm. Or what Comenius, Comenius would say, we want to see society, subspecies, right? And the classic phrase of Spinoza that you see the world's subspecies eternity, which means to see the world from as or as if from eternity. But he was saying, no, we see the world, we see society as if under the aspect of education. Um, So that notion that education is actually the main thing that society is about, we've tricked ourselves into thinking the main thing society is about is economic growth. Mm Seems again bad answer. (laughs) Bad answer to the question. What is the human? It's like it's a very immature answer. It's striking to me. Uh, So there's that sense in which, yeah, there's a new answer to the question. What is the human? That's emerging. Yeah, and and
0: um, one of the parts of your book that I was most struck by, and it's something that I kind of like, kind of knew, but then you said it very directly. It was something like learning without passion essentially is an oxymoron or doesn't make sense. Right. And so there's a way in which what I I hear that you're calling for, um, or what's being called for is some kind of educational system, which calls forth each human being's uniqueness, each of their their own actualization as their specificity. I know that you're deeply um, immersed in like the unique Mark Gaffney's unique self, we also, the last conversation you came on the podcast to talk about was Eros. And I'm curious, like, how you see that all coming together in education, right? It seems like there's this kind of line that, the as you say, the, 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 there's something pulling us forward uh, right. with the interest, with the uniqueness, with the Eros. You know? Totally.
1: It's a great question. <clears throat> and it comes back to the little spiel about... Piaget and what we know about humans and Mm. how they grow and learn. Mm. Um, Another key lesson is that emotion and cognition or thought and feeling, these things are not divorced
0: or Mm. inseparable. Mm.
1: And so this is like the work of Antonio Damasio and Mary Helen Imordino Yang and Kurt Fischer and others who just saw through the emerging neuroscience Mm. (laughs) Mm. uh, that Emotion and learning in particular are deeply related. And the most interesting example is a woman who Antonio Damasio studied who had a calcified amygdala. So Mm. she had a strange stroke that ended up basically calcifying her amygdala, making her amygdala not work now. The amygdala is like the heart of the mammalian brainstem. So it's one of the main things that regulates emotion. Mm. And so she had very strange suppressed affect and was almost... Unable, basically, she was unable to learn new things, especially new things about people, um, and started to make really foolish, Mm. irrational decisions. Um, So, emotion is actually the rudder of thought, Mm. and you know, the clarification of desire and emotional relationship, uh, which is to say, love, Mm. (laughs) is like the rudder of life. (laughs) So there's a way in which, you know, the classic Western separation of thought from emotion and the idea that thought is venerated and in the light and emotion is kind of denigrated and kind of in the darkness. And you can't think clearly if you're feeling that kind of that strong bias, uh, you know, that has bled into a lot of how we think about schooling. Um, But, most of what we know about how humans and especially really successful, really Mm. like successful personality and intellects and maturity, like these people end up being the most emotional. Right. Um, And it seems clear that teacherly authority in particular uh, requires love and is a non transactional relationship Mm. and so I have this thing in the book called the education commodity proposition Mm. and it simply boils down to reducing education to something as if it's a commodity Mm. which would make the teacher-student transaction a customer Mm. service worker (laughs) transaction Uh, and that you can't have teacherly authority under that context. Teacherly Mm. authority requires um, love for lack of a better Mm. way to put it and there may be no better way to put it Um, And that's, of course, expressed in all the ancient texts about education. (laughs) Uh, So, in a way, one of the greatest things that could happen as the schools change would be, and as this kind of revivification of the kind of, you know, apprenticeship and guild structure is that we create uh, educational communities that are much more humane and mm. full of non-commodified s- spacious interaction mm. um, because that's one of the main kind of bottlenecks for this crisis of teacherly authority is right. that it's there's just a lack of love yeah. to go around yeah. is what it feels like yeah. yeah and it's only being held in the in being held by the teacher's gaze yes. like when the teacher sees you with eyes of love it's only there that you can become unique, right? Um, and that's kind of, of course, that's how the de if that's a word, mm. how the standardization mm. and the homogenization takes place in the school uh, often has to do with that inability to be who you really are mm. because you're not being seen with love. You're being seen with, yeah. basically you're turning into a number, you're part of a bureaucratic yeah. thing, you're part of... X, Y, Z, for your own sake, you don't, you're not there. The teacher doesn't
0: relate to you as an end in right. yourself. And so you turn yourself into so you,
1: you, what Habermas calls a self-instrumentalization. Mm. Um, and that's part of the collapse of the life world. Uh, mm. And part of the failure of teacherly authority is that mm. the teacher is that which allows you to step into self, mm. um, which should be a kind of, as pedagogy implies as the Mayudic method applies from Socrates, it's a drawing out or a leading forward. Mm. It's not a putting into. Mm. <laughs> uh, and so then again, the moving forward, the drawing out, these are terms that evoke eros or allurement. So yes. you need to see with love the one you're educating and allow them to be attracted and allured yes. to those things that are theirs to be attracted and allured to. Um, mm. And so that's, part of the work of the teacher is not getting the content delivered, but creating a space of inquiry and freedom. Mm -hmm. And especially now, in the context of global crisis, creating a space for novel problem finding. Mm. Um, Mm. So how do we allow children to discover the problems that are really theirs to solve,
0: Mm. is Mm. one of
1: the ways to think about it. And that's a problem of emotion. Yeah, That's a problem of... Like what pisses you off the most. Yeah, what? where yeah. is there a kind of a, a... What would be the right word? The world is sticky with you. You're, yeah. in, you're intimate yeah, with the totally. world. You're like yeah. enmeshed in it yeah. to the extent that yeah, your soul is caught up in it. Yeah. It's not a false problem you have to solve because yeah. you otherwise you, you should or something. Or you won't yeah. get into college right. or you won't get a job or whatever. Yeah. This is actually a real... Problem And this comes back to that learning like real learning is driven by true curiosity mm. and true curiosity is a fascinating mm. Psychological state to mm. be in mm. um, and many people don't experience true curiosity mm. <laughs> uh, And so to, to actually foster true curiosity um, Requires a, a kind of psychological safety, mm. right? Mm. So you need to be free and held to really not know.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, and right. that's an experience people have with, if you like, as you were saying, you clarified your own relationship to teacherly authority. And That's one of the things that that allows is you actually get to not know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't mean the teacher knows, yeah. but it means that you have a thought partner who can lead you and you feel safe not knowing. Yeah, yeah. Which is different than not knowing in a frantic panic with right. no guidance, which right. is what it feels like for right. most Right. for most of the culture it feels like we don't know and there's no clear psych you know psychopomp or mystagogue mm-hmm. or pedagogue mm-hmm. to lead mm-hmm. us mm-hmm. Uh, so the teacher isn't necessarily the one who knows but he or she is the one who you trust yeah
0: yeah
1: so with your lack of knowledge yeah. <laughs> like you trust yeah. them with the vulnerable curious not knowing yeah. um, and this is also true you know and, and some of the distortion of teacherly authority has to do with the broader media. Yeah, yeah. Like, do the news media or newspapers, New York Times, etc., do they have legitimate teacherly authority? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's an interesting question. Uh, and if so, where do they get it? <laughs> um, and again, it's like, are we willing not to know? Mm. Right. Mm. You know, are we willing not to know? That's another kind of meta modern question. You know. yeah. The humiliation of cognition mm. by the metamodern hyperobjects mm. is one of the things that characterizes our time. It's mm. one of the reasons people talk about us being a failed species. Mm. Um, the idea that we're a failed species, and I can't remember who say that. I got mm. the term from Jonathan Rawson. Mm. But the idea that we're a failed species, I think, only holds because we think that we're a simply cognating species, Mm. right? That we're simply a species who needs to know and control nature. Mm. If that's true, then we're certainly on the brink of failure because we're coming to the point of not being able to understand even our own creations, which have become like a second nature, let alone the full complexity of the natural world. So we are being cognitively humiliated by the crisis, Um, but that's okay. Yeah. Because the human species is not just a cognating species. A yeah. Sapience involves more than just cognition. It involves wisdom and love, mm. and and so there's a way in which the f- breakdown of sense making should be a four way into the opening yes. of other dimensions of our capacity, yeah. um, which will then reconfigure sense making, and maybe this problem we thought we had to solve isn't the actual problem we have to solve. But we'll return to the other dimensions of our humanity precisely because we've been humiliated cognitively by the hyperobjects, the global economy, the the global ecological crisis, all of these things. Even like fundamental physics, like neuroscience, (laughs) like the genome. uh, These are things that. 30 years ago we thought would be complicated problems we could solve, and now we're realizing are massively yeah. complex problems yeah. that perhaps may forever outstrip our full yeah. cognitive grasp. Yeah. And so part of the educational system shift is that the educational system stops pretending to be omniscient. Yeah. The educational system stops yeah. pretending <laughs> to have accomplished all the right. knowing that needs to be accomplished right. and begins to work on these other aspects. Yeah. Precisely because we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. We don't know what's yeah. going to happen. Yeah. We need to know that we will love one another yeah. no matter what happens. Yeah, That seems like great advice. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, if we don't know what's going to happen and we don't even know if we can trust one another, mm. right? we can control at least our choice-making
0: mm.
1: and our commitments, even mm. if we can't control the natural world and the global mm. economy. Mm. And so one of the things that would more us would be an educational system that focused less on the cognitive and more on the ethical and interpersonal so that we would know that, okay, we can't predict cognitively and control, Hmm. but we can mutually understand, coordinate, and Hmm. bring bring coherence and and, uh, and love and compassion, you know? And so that's part of it. And of course the educational system, you know, as the recent college admission scandal shows, you know, it's part of a zero-sum game. Yeah. So, there's not a lot of love in the educational system. It's, you know, it feels like a competition. Yeah. And that's one of the things I write about in the book is how yeah. hyper-competitive yeah. it is. Uh, yeah. And again, that's part of the human capital theory of the human Yeah. You know, is that, oh, right. We'll take from evolutionary psychology yeah. those findings yeah. that say yeah. we're built to be competitive. right? Um, that's, we'll bring that in. Well, that's part of what the human is, just sheer competition. Right. Um, right. And uh, again,
0: not a great answer. Yeah. And, and I think, as I said to you before, one of the reasons I feel really drawn to you and your work is um, you and I share a deep appreciation of James Hillman. Mm. And One of the capacities that perhaps the humiliation of our cognitive uh, aspect of our being will reveal the preciousness of is our is our imagination or or the the imaginal arena of life, and I I would love to hear you kind of presence that because I know that you you say in the book to some degree this is you wrote this for the sake of kindling our collective imagination. Right. Um, and I wonder right. what is wrapped up in that for... No, that's exactly
1: right. And the, the one chapter in the book on the 13 social miracles, you know, it can be misunderstood as a kind of, uh, you know, far left social program or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but in fact, it's not a political platform per se. It's the basic components of a thought experiment. Mm. And, you know a lot of what is happening in entertainment, uh, has to do with the collective imagination Mm. grappling with the global Mm. crisis. Mm. (laughs) Um, so the apocalyptic visions of our culture are part of our dreaming or imaginal,
0: Mm. Mm.
1: our imaginal reaction to the breakdown of our full understanding. Mm. And so, um, some dreams are prophetic, um, But other dreams are simply showing unresolved emotional Mm. and archetypal complexes. Um, Mm. So there's, you know, in Hillman and in other people who are looking at psychology from the perspective of the soul or the mundus imaginalis or the archetypal collective unconscious, um, you know, the embarrassment of the cognitive function is one of the best things that can happen for from the perspective of getting to full maturity, um, you know, and so that is part of the dynamic that we're kind of surfing mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. is the awakening of so much emotional and archetypal kind of activation or complex activation, as it's yeah. called. And so this is some what we're seeing in the public culture um, and the breakdown of teacherly authority and youth culture and... Uh, activism culture and alt-right culture and it's everywhere but what we're getting is precisely because we're unmoored epistemologically mm. there is a kind of room for the pathologizing of archetypal expression which mm. is again psychoanalytically not mm. a bad thing it's a mm. time of purging it's a time mm. of saying everything that needs to be said getting all the ugly shit mm. out of the closet and on the table and realizing mm. that you have all of these weird mm. subconscious desires mm. And so this has to happen, and it has to happen because you fail somehow. Yeah. And our society in many ways has failed. And so all of these you know, these archetypal characters are emerging uh, from the woodworks of ourselves. Yeah. Um, you know, Jesus on the cross, like the victim mentality, mm. who is the greatest victim, uh. is the greatest savior. That's the archetype. Mm. If you're the mm. greatest victim, you're the greatest savior. So if you can appear to be the greatest victim... You will, by virtue, somehow be the greatest savior. So that's one that's emerging, mm. you know? Mm. The kind of uh, the tyrant king mm. archetype is emerging. Mm. The reemergence of fascism, mm. those kinds of archetypal constellations. Um, and so I think, yeah, if we don't start handling that more explicitly in our educational conversations... Yeah. Uh, then we will have a kind of kind of a strange uncontrolled upwelling from the imaginal realm Um, precisely because now the world is not known but a field of projection so the entire world becomes a rorschach right with when your cognition breaks down (laughs) so that means it's just a field of projection and a field of potential re-traumatization and so there needs to be a push towards deepening those languages of self-disclosure mm. that would allow groups to voice mm. the arising archetypal presences without destroying the mm. entire field of conversation, yeah. which is right. what usually happens right. when, when they come out really strong. And uh, mm. so, yeah, so the soul-making work, which is to say the clarification of self and the integration of archetypal tensions and personality, uh, these are tractable educational problems. They're just never mm. addressed as educational problems. Because, yeah. again, then you're getting into, well, what the hell is the human? Yeah. If the human can have spontaneously a dream that recreates an ancient myth. Yeah. That's an interesting question, yeah. which, of course, Jung raised.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but when you look at, like, the neuroscience of dreaming and contemporary work on, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff, you're not seeing clear answers. Yeah. Uh, and similarly, you know, what is the human that will that it will die for an idea
0: mm.
1: or kill for an idea mm. right animals don't do that mm. um, so when we talk about archetypal and you talk about transpersonal it's as simple as that mm. you know, the archetype is that thing that will move your ego beyond itself mm. to the point of even killing your ego mm. <laughs> mm. Um, mm. for better and for worse you know so That sense that we're inhabited by ideas, forces, energies that are greater than us is also kind of gels with the prior ideas of Piaget and these others, that the human actually is larger than we think. It includes the patterns and rhythms and processes of nature. Mm -hmm. Um, And so similarly includes all of the patterns and processes of our Mm -hmm. past historical Mm -hmm. cultural epochs Mm -hmm. and the full realm of seemingly infinite imaginal forms. Mm, uh, mm. And so edu- you can think of education as limiting the state space of imagination yeah. to acquire social functionality,
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> right? right? So like, and this is what a lot of the religious traditions have done historically is that, okay, there is this thing where the human can come to touch things that are much greater than it. Mm. Imaginal realms are tipple, uh, you know, activations, kind of religious experiences or just mathematics, <laughs> just philosophical yeah. insight. Yeah. Like, um, we want to kind of channel that we want to find mm. a way to hone it, to make it powerful and good. Um, so that work remains to be done, but mm. it's exploding. Mm. We can't help it because mm. of the, yeah, of the, the pressures pressure of, of yeah. cognition. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So Hillman's work is part of that meta psychology that needs to be built to inform a new yeah. education. We need yeah. to think differently about the human. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, so those, those considerations are, are 100% on the table.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and I think for me, when I hear you say yeah, this idea that, like, we might move into a world or a society in which education is the primary function, right, um, whereas in the economic society there was this kind of uh, assumption or vision of infinite growth. Right, and if we move over into the educational worldview, the infinite growth of education might be something like actually, infinite soul making. It's actually true. Yeah, that's what's so and it works. Right, because there's unlimited <laughs> growth. There's unlimited growth.
1: That's yeah, that's what's kind of so remarkable about it is that it's uh the educational frontier, as I call it in the book, is actually wide open, um, and the physical material frontiers have closed yeah Yeah. we've encircled the planet yeah you know we're running out of resources to exploit so there are no new what are called energy commodity frontiers except for solar energy Um, but we know that how that works so the idea the insane idea of modern economics that we need basically linear economic growth to the end of time yes uh Begins to almost seem like a kind of fallacy of misplaced concreteness. Yeah, right. Having to do with the potentialities of social evolution, which actually are infinite. Right. They're just not infinite in the domains of material economies. Right. But they are infinite in the domains of kind of like energetic educational economies, which are economies that are ideational. Yeah. The, the nuos, uh, sphere, as it were, um, has a different kind of growth,
0: Mm -hmm. uh,
1: which depends upon having actually figured out how to stop endless economic growth.
0: Yes. Right. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So once we get a stable state closed loop kind of economic thing, if even Mm -hmm. that's possible at this point, given how far we've gone, um, we, we need some way to then transfer all the energy that had been going right. into economic growth into right. educational growth. Right. And right. I think of William James' phrase, the moral equivalent of war. Uh. He's like, well, the reason we fight war is because we've got these archetypal powers coming through us. Uh. We need a moral equivalent to war. Yes. Um, and I saw it recommended a couple of times that the ecological crisis become the moral equivalent mm. to war. But I think that's still more obsession with the material. Um, mm. and the fixing and the perfecting of the material.
0: Mm.
1: When I think that the actual place for infinite growth and the only reason to justify fixing the material at all yeah. <laughs> has to do with the interior. Yes. Um, and that's always been what's so, again, seeming obvious contradiction to the idea that endless economic growth is a good thing. Yes. Is that at the end of the day, we're doing it for the experiences of the humans yes. that benefit from it. Yes. And so if you get negative correlations between economic growth and good human experience, then you seem to, then you have to rethink the whole economic growth as an end in itself. Yeah. Um, if you reversed it, you focused mainly on experience and education, and then the economic machinations became a means to that end. And This is what I suggest in the book. Then you flip the script, yeah. and you've made an edu- you made economics subservient to education, as opposed to education being subservient to
0: mm-hmm.
1: economics. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Now I would suspect, and it would take a while to work this out, that that's actually how it is anyway.
0: <laughs> mm.
1: <laughs> Which is this, and this is why again the wealthiest and most powerful economic agents have always tinkered with the educational mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but making that explicit and actually reorienting, getting rid of the illusion that the economy is the end in itself, yeah. when actually always, of course, the human is the end in itself, yeah. and the economy is a means yeah. to the end of the furthering of the human. Yeah. Uh, that just needs to become clear. Yeah. Um, so there's something, you know, Steiner would say, demonic about the hmm. placing of the physical, monetary, material growth on the throne instead yeah. of yeah. <laughs> the human. Yeah. Um, And so that sense of like the moving, this turning of the wheel back to putting the human at the center, because there was a time when it was that Mm. back to the pre-modern era, you Mm. know, uh, Mm. Carl Polanyi's book, the great transformation was about the move from these forms of social community into market-based societies. So there was a time when the human was the dictating factor. The human sat on the throne of social value, and the economy served the glorification of the human. Yes. Um, but something changed, <clears throat> and now the human serves the glorification of the economy yeah. or those who represent it. Right? Yeah. So, so, yeah, so some of that story is starting to shift. Totally. Um, and you can see it in the change of values where people are choosing right. personal growth over economic, right. uh, over economic growth. Uh, individually.
0: Yeah, it's striking to me that the the transformation that you're describing that could or perhaps should take place in the educational and social field is so symmetrical with the personal transformation that so many of us are experiencing now where Mm -hmm. we're um, realizing the limitations of attempting to satisfy our desires in the material world and almost like taking that pathos and transubstantiating it into desire for meaning and for soulfulness right. and for growth and development right. and all of that. And so uh, that seems to be like a very personal response to the crisis and just to the life itself. And and here we kind of are perhaps articulating a way that we can uh, do that collectively. Right. Which... Right.
1: I mean, that's in a sense what... <clears throat> you know, it's, it's the virtues of poverty,
0: right? It's mm-hmm. what...
1: It's what material frustrations always breed spiritual strength Mm. uh, if they don't kill you. Mm. Mm. (laughs) And uh, it's always interesting, too, because the capitalists know this Mm. because they buy the art created by the starving artists the African-Americans. But there's always been uh, truth to that. And so as we exhaust the limits of the capitalist world system Mm -hmm. and we're forced to deal with actual material constraint, I believe it's almost inevitable that we return to certain spiritual orientations yes. um and you know I welcome that but it will be a bumpy ride because the kind of basic kind of material from which we could build a new religious ethos is very scattered um and has been quite diffused of potency yeah. by its commodification so the question of when we finally return to metaphysics and we return to look at the human away from the dollar on the throne, (laughs) Uh, what will we then look to? Um, And will we simply return to fundamentalism Hmm. and everyone becomes Catholic or something? (laughs) Uh, Or will there be a truly emergent new religious Hmm. form? Um, And I think that is something that is not considered a lot when we think about this global situation, which is actually a situation, to me, that portends the emergence of a lot of new religious movements. Mm-hmm. That's already happening. Mm-hmm. Um, another part of the breakdown and the humiliation of cognition. But it also has to do with the dawning of material limitation mm-hmm. and the threat of material annihilation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so another factor in that argument, too, is that capitalism's always been supported by the work ethic provided by religious traditions. Mm. As religious traditions break down,
0: Mm.
1: people become less responsible, Mm. families break down, Mm. you can't raise a little boy to become a CEO, and now capitalism doesn't work because it's undercut its own Mm. material conditions, Mm. rather its own cultural conditions. It undercuts its own material conditions also, Mm. (laughs) but it undercuts its cultural resources of discipline and meaning making that come from religion. So there's actually an impetus to just keep society going Uh, which is to say there's a desire to make new meaning mm. uh, just so that we can justify mm. getting up every day and going and doing something. Right. Um, and so, yeah, there's going to be a resurgence of kind of religiosity and spirituality. I talk about this in the book. Yeah. You know, that one of the key factors in rethinking religion, I mean, excuse me, one of the key factors in rethinking education is rethinking religion Mm -hmm. uh, and rethinking spirituality. Uh, So yes, it's a multi dimensional educational opportunity, Mm. (laughs) right? Which is coming. Like we need to be prepared to, and not, we don't have to instigate this. Like people are going to be seeking new forms of education and new forms of identity Yes and answers to the question what is the human if the human is no longer a wage laborer yes if the human can no longer gain its identity from the nation state Mm -hmm. right what is the human so so
0: Mm -hmm. thank you yeah thank you really great conversation